This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Solomon Choi, who is the founder and CEO of 16 Handles, which if you live in the tri-state area or in Boca Raton, I highly recommend you go to, particularly with your kids who will love it, believe me. Solomon, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. So the passage you chose is from Leviticus 25. So tell us about what's going on in the passage and why it's so significant to you. Sure. So the passage that I chose um, really happens to deal with uh, the year of Jubilee. And I think, Mark, before jumping into that passage, I'd like to kind of give a little backstory that I think would create a lot, a better framework of how I ended up there. And so when you had invited me onto your show, I was really uh, praying and asking for guidance from God to really select the passage that I think would be meaningful. And I initially wanted to make that uh, really about my son. My son's name is Joshua. I think you have a son named Joshua as well. And uh, really through the story of Jericho and, and leading the people into the promised land, that initial story then turned into a focus on really the idea of the shofar and its meaning. I actually had no idea of the uh, significance of that. Um, and obviously, you know, through the battle of Jericho and understanding how that played, I realized that, you know, that actually led me to what happened to be my daughter's name, which is Jubilee, not even realizing the significance of what Jubilee is uh, when it comes to, to the Bible, specifically here in the Old Testament. And really that that was the ultimate celebration and where the sounding of the shofar then really had such a significance to the Jewish people. So that's kind of the backstory there. And even with the naming, Mark, I was born in South Korea to Christian parents who immigrated in 1981 from Seoul. I came when I was 18 months old. And before I was even given an English name, uh, my mother really wanted to name me Joshua. And that's why it was an homage to her when I had my first son that I named him Joshua. But what had happened was we were living with my aunt and uncle in a three-bedroom apartment between two families in Baltimore, Maryland. And my aunt was saying, oh, I hope you grow up to be as wise as Solomon. I picked up the English language very quickly. And so at the age of two, I was going around telling people, hi, my name's Solomon. My name's Solomon. So I kind of named myself that way. What was your original? What's your birth name? My birth name is Hyundok. So it's a Korean name. But when we immigrated to the States, you know, uh, my mom wanted to give me an English name that I could use in school. And again, she wanted it to be Joshua, but somehow I named myself Solomon. Unbelievable. What a great story. And so when I moved to New York City from LA, this was in 2008 to start 16 Handles. This was almost an analogy of, it was my journey into the promised land and what New York City would be to me, both from, you know, as an entrepreneur and what that meant on that journey. I met my wife, Hannah. You know, Hannah grew up in Long Island and um, is a Korean American, grew up Christian. We met, um, got married very quickly. And we had had this conversation that if we were to have a son, that his name would be Joshua. And, and was she okay with that? And she said, absolutely. I love that name. Turns out that, you know, we had a daughter. And when we were on our uh, honeymoon in New Zealand, we had walked across a cafe and it said Cafe Jubilee. And for whatever reason, in, in that moment, you know, we said like, that's an interesting and pretty name. You know, it's not really a common name. And I said, hey, in the event that we have a daughter, you know, would you be okay with that name? Because that name's really beautiful. And she's like, yeah, I, lo I love that. And, I, and so, you know, one of those things where we're very opinionated on certain things, but those two naming conventions and those two names, we were so aligned on. And, you know, fast forward, you know, we had a daughter, her name was Jubilee. So again, kind of going back into this passage, again, I was very much set on kind of the story of Jericho and Joshua, really wanted to do that. But then 
this uh, topic of the shofar came into play. And so once again, for me, I was able to do some research and knowing the significance of that. So going into now the passage of Leviticus with that backstory and just realizing that if I put myself in that period of time and the blasting of that shofar and what that meant to me in terms of whether I was a, a landowner or I was you know, an indentured servant and just what that meant in terms of erasing any debt and then that, the holy number of, of seven and that seven years so the seventh, seven year, which would be the 49th year, and then the trumpet being sounded on the 50th year and what that meant in terms of uh, faith, as well as kind of setting the captives free, I think has such a huge resounding impact on certainly the people at that time, but what that really means to me. So let's go into the biblical text. So what happens at year seven and then what happens at year 50? Right. So year seven being the Sabbath year. So really, uh, the Jewish people at the time uh, not being able to uh, really harvest, right, and not sowing. So the seventh year has got to be a rest for the land, just like the seventh day is a rest for people. The seventh year is a rest for the land. Absolutely. And so the seventh time that that happens, which would be then the 49th year and then the 50th year being the year of the Jubilee, um, would be the same thing. On the 50th year, there would be a time of rest for the land and for the people. And, you know, really that time was to rest, spend time with family, spend time with God, and to really have faith that, you know, even if you stop working, you will have all that you need that God will provide. And so that's the significance in terms of what that 50th year meant. And everyone was to return to their property. The other part here that I thought was really interesting was, you know, there's five times mentioned throughout this passage where God reminds them, you know, fear your God, I'm the Lord, your God, and do not take advantage of each other. And so I think that that was the kind of secondary uh, part of this, which is, you know, at a time when... Um, People fell into hard times and they had to sell their land, for instance. You know, you weren't supposed to take advantage. You weren't supposed to profit off of that. You know, in essence, you, were, you allowed people to work off any debt that was owed to you. And in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, any debt that was accumulated would be, you know, completely forgiven. And so the significance of that, you know, I could only imagine would be huge, you know, for somebody who is essentially an indentured servant, you know, working off any debt that they have and being able to, to have any, all of that debt erased. You know, I think the significance of that in terms of also fear your God, I am your God, do not take advantage of each other is something that really is a, is a reminder that there truly is only one landlord. That's right. And that's God. And, and I think that the passage that you just brought up, which was from 25, 36 to 38, is so instructive because in this passage, God is getting deep into the intricacies of commercial and contract law. Do not take from him interest and increase. He's regulating interest. He's saying... Uh, do not give him money for interest, nor do not give him food for increase. So one would think these are very detailed instructions about how the economy of society should be governed. And then God comes and says, I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. In other words, what God is saying is how you conduct yourself in business is of divine importance. So what you charge in interest, how you treat people commercially, don't think that's just a matter between you and the other guy. And it has nothing to do with me. And you come to me on Saturday or Sunday. That's not the way it is. I am Hashem, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. And specifically in this passage, I'm watching how you operate commercially. And you were to operate commercially with the full acknowledgement that I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, I care as much as I care about anything about how you conduct yourself in what you might think are mundane activities. Absolutely, Mark. And you know, really this notion of what it means to be a good steward you know, coming into New York City, I think, again, there's a, there's a nice parallel here for me because I really got to understand how commercial real estate worked. You know, I have a franchise business. And so 
a lot of times I'm reviewing leases and, and those types of contracts that my franchisees, as well as I have, because I have corporate locations as well uh, with a lot of these landlords. And so in terms of like what it means to, you know, take advantage and, you know, to be fair and those types of notions, I've seen it where, you know, landlords have certain times been more difficult to work with and greedy. And I've also seen times like today, and this is where I think it's, it's truly interesting. I almost feel that in God's humor, this year could certainly be looked upon um, as a year of Jubilee, you know, in the sense that there are landlords right now who for the first time and maybe ever or in a long time are having to, are forced to not be able to evict tenants, right? There are times where tenants are, have protections. There's PPP loans. There are these forgivable loans where it's almost like, hey, it's not that you deserve this, but this is coming from a, a higher source to be able to bless you. And to also, if you look at the fact that, you know, in terms of resting in the land, I've been at my in-laws here in Long Island uh, since March. You know, so this year was very much like stay home, be with family, uh, spend time with family, spend time reflecting on me, obey me, and I am going to take care of your needs. You know, I'm not out there working. I'm not out there actively, physically, you know, in my, cultivating my land. And so in, in a lot of regards, there's these parallels that I've seen just in my own personal experience that truly this time of, of reflection and being able to set free and there are these forgivable loans that are coming down. I mean, these blessings really interesting at a time when, you know, because of COVID and everything else, it's easy to get caught up in kind of what's not working. That as a matter of fact, I'm actually physically working less now, but you know, most of my locations are open while they certainly may not be thriving today. Again, through faith, they are surviving and we're able to, um, you know, preserve our brand and to continue to grow. We even opened a location uh, just last month down in Tribeca. And so the fact that there's even still growth at a time when we're hearing and reading about all these things of, uh, you know, desperation and, and restaurants closing, again, I think that being a good steward of what we've been given, and even again, working with landlords who, you know, truly are not lords, right? I mean, they are, they're supposed to be managers, but even them now having to be more fair and equitable with, you know, lease terms, concessions, again, not taking advantage of one another, which was mentioned many times throughout this passage, just re a real interesting connection to really see play out, you know, over the last, uh, you know, seven months. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just getting back to what you're talking about before about the shofar, it's, it's very interesting here in 25.9, you shall sound a broken blast of the shofar. So Jews will be familiar with this because this is the famous broken blast on Yom Kippur. In the seventh month, on the 10th of the month, that's Yom Kippur. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the shofar throughout your land. Then comes one of the most famous lines in American history. It's in the Bible. You shall sanctify the 50th year and proclaim freedom throughout the land for all its inhabitants. This is what's written on the Liberty Bell. I did not know that. Yeah, proclaim freedom throughout the land for all of its inhabitants. This is the great moral ambition for America that Ben Franklin and his colleagues at the founding had is when they thought about what do we want America to be, they turned to the passage Solomon that you chose and they picked 2510 and they said, they said we shall proclaim freedom throughout the land for all of its inhabitants. And what a radical statement, freedom for all of its inhabitants. And uh, one way, and I believe the correct way to interpret the Bible is it really amplifies and celebrates and mandates freedom and subverts the logic of the evil institution of slavery. And here is just one of the manifestations. That's the biblical ambition. And it's the American ambition. The founders could have chosen any passage from the Bible or any passage not from the Bible or no passage at all to articulate what they thought liberty meant to them, but the passage they chose of anything to choose from, they could have made something up, but they didn't. They picked proclaimed freedom throughout the land for all of its inhabitants. 
I agree. And again, I think we're living in a, in, a, in a day and age where really this idea of all of us being equal and having this sort of liberty um, is at the forefront, right? And one of the things, Mark, that I wanted to also point out was in, in verse 35, I mean, for, from my version, and it says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger. Again, once again, kind of uh, level setting that for all people so they can continue to live among you. And uh, the following verse, do not take any interest or profit from them, but fear your God. So in looking at that, again, I truly feel that this passage kind of like level sets and sets free all people. And that, uh, you know, in the eyes of God, that we are all to fear the Lord and to be able to be good stewards and to treat each other in a way to be fair and equitable so that way we can all survive. Yes. And it also articulates a very sophisticated way of treating. So as you said, it's if your fellow Israelite or your brother, different translations, doesn't really matter for here becomes impoverished and his means falter in your proximity. So one would think, so the next part of the passage is going to tell me to give him charity. There's actually no Hebrew word for charity. It's Sedeca righteousness. There's no notion of kindness of our heart. It's something we got to do. But anyway, put that aside. One would think, okay, our neighbor, our brother, our fellow Israelite becomes impoverished. And then it clarifies, could be a proselyte or resident. So someone in our community becomes impoverished. What do we do? We say, let's give him something. Let's, no, it's not what it says. It says, you shall strengthen him. So then logically one asks, well, what does it mean to strengthen him? It means do not take from him interest and income. In other words, give him an interest-free loan. It's basically teaching us that when someone becomes impoverished, the first thing we have to think about is his dignity. And in the context of thinking about his dignity, do we come up with the tactic to help him? And the tactic here is it doesn't say give him stuff, although sometimes that's very important and in fact mandatory. There's certainly a place for that. But the highest thing we can do for someone is give them a loan. Because when we give someone a loan, what we're saying is, I have so much confidence in you, I know you're gonna pay this back. I don't even need any interest because you, you're you. Of course you're gonna make good on it. Yeah, you hit some hard times. You know, I have too, we all have, it's okay. But you're impoverished now, I'm gonna give you a loan. You're gonna do great with it and you're gonna pay me back and it's all good. That's dignity. And that's what it mandates here. It is, and, and Mark, so again, I, looking at that parallel now, I've certainly had a lot of conversations over the last two quarters with many landlords on behalf of and with my franchisees. And that's really what it is. And most landlords that we've talked to, again, realize that, hey, we're, we're all, we've all fallen on hard times. And even the landlords themselves are saying like, hey, we're not just greedy landlords. You know, we're actually business owners ourselves. And you know, we're, we're looking for some sort of a aid or bailout, you know, just like you're getting PPP loans. We're not necessarily getting that. But we do want you here. We do want to work with you. And so I've seen kind of more of a humanitarian approach uh, to commercial real estate more than ever. Here's a question. Maybe this is an academic question and the answer doesn't really matter. But are the landlords acting this way, as you just said, because of humanitarian reasons or realistically, there aren't a lot of tenants lining up to take your space? I mean, there's a certain economic reality here that they have to kind of work with you because there's no one else to work with in this climate in retail. Sure. And, and while I agree that that's a general truth, I, I will say, though, there are still are a few, um, unfortunately, who would rather have an empty space. What's their logic? Because, you know, as, as I get older and as we study the Torah more, the, the importance of trying to understand what the other person is thinking, I realize how difficult it is and how important it is. So what is the landlord thinking when he said, I'd rather have an empty space than to work with you, you being a great tenant for many years that for no fault of 16 handles, it's not like a, a competitor merge that's better or cheaper or people stop liking ice cream. There's not, no, no, no. Everyone knows what happened. So what is their thinking when they decided rather have an empty space than to work with you? 
I can only guess, but one of the reasons could be maybe, you know, they're so wealthy that they're like, you know, I don't want to ruin the cap rate of, of my building or of my complex. And so I can weather the storm, whether it's going to be a year or two years, and I don't want to devalue. So if I lower your rent, that'll tell the next tenant that the rent is what Solomon's paying. I don't want anyone to know that. Or, or to tell the bank that, hey, the value in terms of what I'm able to collect on rent is actually a lot less, right? We, they want to keep the rents at a certain, at the maximum level to maximize the value of the type of loans that they're going to be able to get. So they'd rather tell the bank, this property's worth a lot and just ignore the fact that no one's paying a lot. Right, I'll, I'll float it. I'll float it and I'll, I'm paying the real estate taxes on the value of what I'm saying this building is worth and you know, with or without a tenant. So they would rather do that. When the bankers in that case say, you say it's worth X, but nobody's paying you X. That's only if they're defaulting on their loan. If they're floating that, paying their taxes, paying it. Again, that's why I'm saying. I think it probably only applies to a certain percentage that are just extremely wealthy and have so much that they can actually do that. I don't think that that's most landlords. People who don't need the cash flow. Correct. Again, when I see that, you know, I, I truly feel that they're doing the opposite of kind of what this passage is talking about and what God really commanded, which is they're taking advantage of the situation. They're really, you know, making it difficult for the tenant to be able to survive. And if anything, they're not being good stewards and they themselves are acting as if they are the landlord um, as opposed to the real estate partner. Correct. Correct. You know, and so, so I see that. And I, I will also say this, Mark, is another very interesting parallel is my first location, my first franchise location opened in September 11th of 2010. I had to actually go back and look at this when I was kind of doing this research. My first franchisees were actually two Jewish partners um, that I got to come together and open the first location, which happened to be in a town in Long Island called Jericho. And the significance of that is when I look back on that, that date of September 11th actually fell right after Rosh Hashanah and right before Yom Kippur the following Friday. And as a result of that, you know, we grew 16 handles organically. I, I did not receive um, outside funding. This was a completely a bootstrapped approach with the seed investment from family with one location in New York City that then caught the eye of, of this great uh, you know, Jewish franchisee in Long Island. But then once that opened, I mean, I learned what Jewish geography meant. And then all of a sudden, this flood of Jewish franchisee entrepreneurs and in the markets that we would open, they were all in, in Jewish communities. So how many of your... Several dozen franchisees, can you trace back to the first one? I would say the majority of them. And that's why the majority of my franchisees are, are, are Jew, happen to be Jewish. I don't think that that's by accident. You know, one of the things I think that, you know, God really imparted on me was when I opened my first location in these village, I had 10 direct competitors selling frozen dessert within a three block radius. I mean, this is truly like, you know, David going into against the Goliaths, right? Yeah. I mean, no consultant would say, hey, Solomon, it'd be a great idea to be the 10th. Oh, no, this was also the first time that the real estate broker was trying to twist my arm to say, do not open here. Like, this makes no sense. Mark, this was in 2008. This was certainly not the best time to be starting a business. And I'm going into this land of giants surrounded by a lot of these private equity backed companies, some of them national and international chains. What, like Tasty Delight? Tasty Delight, Pinkberry, Red Mango. I mean, you name it, they were there. Ben and Jerry's. It, it was almost like you have no shot at this. And I remember even my, my broker, who was a, an older Jewish guy, he's like, look, kid, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York City. I appreciate your enthusiasm. You have no idea what you're doing. Do not open here. You are just going to get crushed. You're wasting your parents' uh, money. Let me take you to an area in New York City where you won't have even one competitor within three block radius. And I told him, and his name was Steve. I said, Steve, I can't take that risk. And he said, why not? I go, I know nothing about New York City other than I feel that if I'm going to create this brand and create hopefully a global franchise that I need to do that in New York City. And if you're telling me that there's nowhere else in New York City, let alone probably the world that has 10 frozen dessert shops within a three block radius, 
to me, my challenge is I just have to be number one out of these 10, right? If I can do that, play this out with me. I know you think it's ridiculous, but if I can somehow become better than and have the highest sales out of all these other competitors, will at least some New Yorkers say 16 Handles is the number one frozen dessert chain in all of New York City? Will some people say that? And he goes, well, yeah, but how can you do that? And I said, well, see the how I think I have. The where is where I'm confused. And if you're telling me all these other competitors are also paying these New York City rents, which are so high, and they're all here surviving, that means that this really then becomes the largest pie. And I just need to become the largest slice within that pie. And he goes, look, I appreciate the way that you're thinking. I was 27 years old. I was young and naive, but I think that all helped me. And again, that's why I'm saying like that was almost like my journey going into this land of giants, really armed with what I had $600,000 in a checking account so I could open up one location. And here I am choosing to go there. And I did it. And, you know, praise God. But now, you know, nine of those 10 competitors over the years have closed. We celebrated our, our 12th birthday there, anniversary there uh, just this past summer. So the reason I wanted to bring that up is one of the things I noticed when I researched those 10 was I said, hey, this area and this market here, I noticed that uh, I, I passed by some restaurants. I was like, why do they have a kosher certification? And, and, you know, kind of growing up, I was like, I think I know what kosher is. I think that's something that, you know, Jewish people follow if it's part of their diet. But there's certainly a, a group here, a, a bigger group here that's probably not being addressed. And with all the different ice cream and yogurt shops that I saw, I saw nobody had that certificate. So I did some research. That's when I learned about the different, you know, rabbinical councils. And, and I said, you know what? I'm going to be the first one to create not only this store, but a brand that's kosher certified. And I didn't know what the repercussions or the meaning of that would be, but I said, but that at least makes me different. So, so all those competitors we talked about, they're not kosher? They were not kosher. And certainly even if they were, it would be maybe a location in a very Jewish community. But to me, I said, I want to be a brand that's completely kosher where all of my stores you know, are certified by the rabbinical council. Not, obviously the products I have then need to be, but I want to be known as kind of this like haven where you know, people who follow a kosher diet will know that, hey, I can go and it's good for me. And so- I think also in doing that and in planting that seed, right, that's where, you know, I certainly got the, the attention of, you know, certainly a, a Jewish demographic that was like, oh, and I remember it even started with the NYU students. One of the reasons I wanted to open up in the East Village was I remember Steve had asked me, he goes, hey, who are you looking for? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, you'll appreciate this, Mark. Coming from LA, not knowing anything about New York City, the only two data points I had in terms of locations were Wall Street right from the movie. And Times Square because of New Year's. I literally walked, Mark, from uh, Wall Street to Times Square probably numerous times trying to understand what is east side of Manhattan, west side of Manhattan, what does uh, weekday, daytime traffic look like? I was trying to do my own guerrilla version of trying to do you know, demographics. And, and, and the more I did, I did this for two weeks. I've never walked so many miles on foot in my life. But I was like, I can't get this wrong. I have my family's money. I get one shot at this. And meanwhile, brokers and people are telling me, oh, if you're on the wrong, this side of the avenue, it won't make it. And if you're on one wrong side street, that's going to be empty. And I was just like, so confused. And so finally, when the broker said like, who are you looking for? I thought, oh my goodness, that's like marketing one-on-one. That's my target demographic. And I thought, well, I worked at the very first self-serve pay-by-weight frozen yogurt shop in California and worked there for free for three months. It was a family friend. And so that's why when I came here, I said, I don't think that my demo changes. I go, I'm looking for the 18 to 34 year old female. And so you know, he said, well, if you're looking for the 18-year-old female, you want to open up by NYU. And I said, well, let's go check out that campus, only to then once again realize that it's not a traditional university campus. It's buildings all over the place. And then so finally, I said, instead of walking around in my desert of New York City, like aimlessly walking around, I said, where are the largest freshman dormitories? And he goes, well, those are in East Village. 
And then that's how East Village came into play. And he goes, but you don't want to open there. There's way too much competition. Again, it's a land full of giants. You're not going to make it there. But literally took out a map, plotted it. The largest dorm being the corner of 10th Street and 3rd Avenue. I'll never forget that because a lot of my first employees came from there. And when we plotted a three, four block radius, that's when I noticed there were 10 ice cream and frozen dessert shops. And I said, this is exactly where I need to be. And so once again, got that location on 2nd Avenue between 9th and 10th. And then moving forward, you know, just organically grew, you know, the, the NYU, you know, Jewish student groups took notice of that. They came and supported, you know, I would support them for their events and word of mouth really, you know, then spread the existence of 16 handles and, and really allowed us to grow. And, you know, this, the gentleman from Long Island who then came by because his daughter was a frequent customer met me and said, how are you planning on growing this concept? And I said, I'm going to be franchising at some point. And he said, here, gave me a handshake and said, you have my word that once you're ready to franchise, I will be your first franchisee. And I thought, oh my goodness, like what, how does that happen? You know, here I am in this land where I know nobody, I have no network. So the guy in Long Island was the father of an NYU student who was your customer? Correct. And it's all because you got the coaster certification that she was able to go to 16 Handles. Perhaps, but again, like I, I can't say that for sure. But again, I, I do think that, uh, I do know that when I was working, because I was working there seven days a week, that I certainly had a lot of, uh, you know, Jewish clientele. And that they were like, oh, I heard this place was kosher. And so, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly did play a role there. And then again, once he opened in Jericho, that really then opened up the floodgates. And all of a sudden we were getting franchise requests from all over the tri-state. And that wasn't due to any advertising I did. It was all through kind of word of mouth, through communities, families, friends, I'm sure. And so all of my franchisees initially were, were customers. You know, and that's how we were able to grow. And that's why we're regional to where we are. If you think about it, we're in the tri-state and we're in Boca, right? It's not a coincidence that these are also markets where there's, you know, a heavy Jewish population. Fascinating. Well, well, what an incredible story that's obviously um, ongoing and growing for 16 Handles. And uh, what an interesting discussion of such an important biblical passage and its resonance today, both in business and, and in uh, our very contemporary society. So, Solomon, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another very different text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And uh, he says, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Solomon, in all of your years in being a New York City ice cream entrepreneur, franchisor, businessman, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Great question. So one thing I've learned, and again, I think it's also very apropos to this passage, is that, you know, I have two young children. I have a three and a half year old and a soon to be one year old, Joshua. And I, and I see that with kids and I see that with adults, this idea of it's mine uh, is something that I don't think necessarily changes. And secondly, and I think um, maybe even more important is I've learned the importance and the value of meeting and conducting business or and especially during hard times. I think when there's conflict, to be able to do something face to face. And when you talk face to face, I think it certainly neutralizes the situation because I believe that deep down inside, man is seeking reconciliation. Oh, you want to live in peace. We want to be atoned. We want to be forgiven. And Mark, I think it goes even further than that is why is it more important to do that face to face as opposed to so many times I've had challenges when it's by text, by email, lost in translation. It just fuels the other person to you know, think something else. But I've learned that when you meet face to face and neutralize it because we're all created in God's image. And when you're in the presence of God, similar to how the chauffeur is, is, is a curved ram's horn, 
I think it forces us to bend. It forces us to be of contrite spirit, seeking atonement and reconciliation. And therefore, any kind of like, uh, you know, stigma or any kind of anger that's in us, I, I believe some of that gets neutralized because when we are seeing and speaking to another person who's also creating God's image, I think the presence of God is there. You're so right about the kind of ineffectiveness and perhaps inefficiency. We, we think it's efficiency, but if it's ineffective, it's going to be inefficient of so much of asynchronous communication. Email, text, it could be easily misinterpreted. It reminds me of what Madison said in Federalist 37 when he said, when the Almighty himself condescends to address mankind in their own language, his meaning, luminous as it might be, is rendered dim and doubtful by the cloudy medium through which it is communicated. So this is Madison talking about the Bible. He's saying it's always hard to understand what anyone Madison is saying. Even the Almighty himself is saying, but what you're saying is when it's face-to-face, a lot of what's obfuscated becomes clarified. Absolutely. I think it's important to do that. It's something that I certainly do, um, especially when there's conflict. How about the use of technologies like Skype and Zoom? Like, Where do you put that in terms of the effectiveness of communication between a phone call, an email, and a text on one side and an in-person meeting on the other? Well, I think it's one degree better, right? Because we're able to um, see each other. Even now, as we're able to see each other through video, I think that that certainly helps. But I truly believe that when you're in that same room, when you're physically in the presence and, and able to see, hear uh, that other person, there's something else there. And that's when I've learned that, again, in the most challenging times, whether it's with a vendor or a potential or a franchisee or you know, somebody I'm having an argument with, that, that definitely neutralizes it. And there is this spirit of, hey, let's work towards reconciliation and getting on the same page. And I think healing begins there. So I, I think video certainly helps, but is a lesson that you take from that. If you're in a conflict with someone commercial or otherwise, stop having the conflict asynchronously, get in a room with the person and have the conflict in person. 100%. 100%. The best deals that I've also done um, have been in person. And I've driven out two hours to meet with you know, landlords in person. And again, through email and maybe no, 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 I'm not changing my mind, take it or leave it. But once you meet in person, it's off, it's off in that person's heart. And I think that, again, there's something truly, uh, you know, not magical, but anything spiritual there. That's beautiful. And I, I, I remember like uh, in, the, in the late 90s when the internet was first really being invented and coming on, people were like predicting the end of air travel, the end of business air travel. And it never happened to quite the opposite. And I think probably because people, albeit they haven't realized it as profoundly as you haven't articulated it nearly as well, but they realize that you got to meet the person. Yeah, there are lots of other ways to communicate asynchronously and they're all wonderful, but you got to meet the person. I agree. And with today's day and age of social media and really a lot of that just being a self-shill and really only posting and showing the best side or the most aspirational side of yourself, I think once you meet in person, you can kind of cut through all those layers and you have to be real, especially if you spend enough time in person. Well, Salman, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about uh, uh, so many things emanating from Leviticus 25 and um, into your business and our current study. This is the way the Bible is meant to be interpreted, just the way to illuminate our lives and to, and to be our guide. So thank you for letting Leviticus 25 be our guide. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.